you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul. And I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well-endowed. Before we jump in, we're so excited to share with you that our CEO, Martin Garber-Conrad, received an honorary doctorate of laws degree from the University of Alberta. We wanted to say a big congrats to Martin. It's very cool to work with such an amazing person, and we're not just saying that because he's our boss and lets us have a podcast. (laughs) Right, so turning back to the show, I see we have another installment of our history series with Chris Chang-Yen Phillips lined up. We do. This year we've been sharing some stories about buildings named after famous Albertans who owned them or lived in them. Today, we've got a story about Calgary's historic Grand Theatre. And a man who stood up to injustice there a century ago. His name isn't on the building, but he helped change the landscape for Albertans. Our correspondent, Chris Chang-Yen Phillips, called up author Cheryl Fogo to get the story. Hi, I'm Cheryl Fogo. I'm an author and community historian, and I write a lot about people of African descent who are a part of the Alberta, well, particularly the Western Canadian Um, mosaic and I'm a descendant of pioneers who arrived in the area in 1910 so I also write a lot about that specific community. Oh boy it was so long ago that I first ran across the Charles Daniels story that I'm actually not sure when or why it was. I was just in the process of discovering that we weren't the first black people here. I knew that there were were a few individuals, of course. I had heard about John Ware. But at that point, I was discovering that people like Charles Daniels had been here for a while and that my ancestors came into a small but already establishing community of people of African descent in Western Canada. What do we know about Charles Daniels' life before he walked into the Sherman Grand Theater that night? He had already been involved with a group of people who did work on behalf of the African-descended community who lived in Calgary because his name popped up in connection with other events and particularly with a group called the Colored People's Protective Association. So he was uh, he was not a person who just decided on a whim that day to stand up to the situation he encountered. He had a history of doing that prior to that particular day. But it's interesting how deeply buried the histories of people of African descent can be, we don't even know for sure if his name was Charles Daniel or Charles Daniels. Most of what I know about the specifics of what happened come from the transcripts, the the pre-trial questioning documents that Bashir uncovered at the um, 
at the archives up there in Edmonton. Bashir Mohammed. Bashir Mohammed, that's right. Was uh, It was a very interesting situation. He had bought a ticket to see a show, I think it was King Lear, at the Grand, a live show. This is back in 1914. And he had sent the son of a neighbor to the theater to pick up the tickets. So he himself had not purchased them in person. And when he got to the theater, he and his friend who was going to see the show with him were told that they could um, get their ticket refunded or they could go upstairs and um, sit where the black people sat or they could get the ticket refunded and then pay a lower price for the upstairs ticket, I believe. Um, Anyway, he refused all of that and said, no, I want to sit in the seat that I purchased. And he then, you know, they kind of danced around the issue and he confronted them about why they were refusing him admission. And a fuss was made and um, he was finally asked to leave. And he went home and decided that he wasn't going to just leave it at that. He was going to challenge them on that. Hmm. So this theater was owned by a fairly prominent senator at the time, Senator James Lougheed, and, and Charles Daniels ended up suing the theater for discrimination. And he, he sued them for $1,000 in damages. Is that right? That's what he wanted to do. And the, it would appear from what we know now that the case actually never went to trial. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger about what actually happened ultimately, but that was what he asked for in the court, yes. Interesting. So um, it didn't go to trial. What ended up happening with the damages that he requested? We're still in the process of investigating. All I can say is that the story that I believed to be true is not necessarily true. So that narrative went that he sued for $1,000 in damages and won by default because nobody from the firm of Lougheed and Bennett showed up at the court date. That may not be true. I hope to find out more about this. It's a much more, uh, it's a much richer story than what we've known about it in the past. And he was incredibly, he was an incredibly strong person to be willing to go up against a man who was not only a senator, but also a lawyer. And because James Lougheed owned the theater, but wasn't involved in the running of the theater. In fact, he, I believe, even said he didn't own the theater per se. He owned the building. He ultimately it would appear, had his name removed from the lawsuit for that reason. Wow, I am so intrigued to see how your research pans out. This is is very exciting that that you're in a discovery phase. Yeah, I'm working on a uh, a short film about the story with Spotlight Productions, and I'm having a really great time sort of trying to create a picture of what his life was like and who his associates were and finding more detail about this specific case. And that I'm hoping that will be ready in the summer 
and uh, I hope people are inspired by his example and are enlightened about Black people's lives in, in Calgary, going back a long time. That was author and playwright Cheryl Fogo. We reached her in Amsterdam. Thanks to Chris Chang Yen Phillips for bringing us that story. Next up, we're going to hear about an amazing program here in Edmonton. That's right. The group is called You Can Ride Too. They offer an adaptive bike rental program so all children can experience cycling. Kids with varying levels of cognitive and physical ability can find a bike that fits and works for their bodies so that they can play in the neighborhoods and with everyone else. Allowing families to rent adaptive bikes is huge. Bikes like these can run from four dollars to $7,000 and need to be replaced regularly as your child grows and their needs change. You Can Ride Too reduces the financial barrier and helps ensure that kids are using the best bikes for them. Our new summer intern, Marion Roberts, went down to the You Can Ride Too warehouse to speak to their program coordinator, Meredith Mantooth. Just a heads up, listeners, they share a location with a Goodwill storage site, so you're going to hear a lot of forklift and other background activity as the folks work to organize the space. I'm Marianne Roberts with the Edmonton Community Foundation. I'm sitting here with Meredith Mantooth with You Can Ride Too. Hi, Meredith. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you please explain to me a little bit about what You Can Ride Too is and what you guys are doing for the community? Absolutely. I'd really love to do that. You Can Ride Too started as a grassroots initiative amongst some physiotherapists who saw a need amongst their clients for more opportunities to bring cycling into their lives. So so it started out with as a learn to ride course to help kids with developmental and cognitive disabilities learn to ride a two-wheeled bike. And from there, the therapist sort of started to realize that while this is a really great program we're doing, this learn to ride, not every kid has that option as well. So what can we do to make sure that all kids can enjoy the freedom and independence of cycling? And that's how Borrow a Bike was born. And that's kind of how You Can Ride Too came to be. Because it was just Learn to Ride. And then when they added the Borrow a Bike program, we became You Can Ride Too. So our goal is to help improve cycling accessibility for youth in Edmonton so that all kids can enjoy cycling. And I believe you are the program coordinator, is that correct? Yeah, I'm the program coordinator. I'm the sole administrative employee of the organization. We have two part-time employees. Our other is our head mechanic. And so between the head mechanic and I and all of the amazing volunteers on our leadership team, we get it done. Take me through a day in the life of you and your role. This work is actually really influenced by the seasons. So right now, with it being really nice outside, most of our bikes are out. So my life is a little quieter during the summer seasons and a little bit busier during the winter seasons. So every spring, the kids take the bikes home. And my job is to make sure that happens smoothly and with as little effort as possible. So when registration opens, kids take the bikes home. My days really are consist of scheduling and administration, processing payments and paperwork that kind of thing. I'm also writing grants. On the topic there of grants, mm-hmm. I understand that ECF provided You Can Ride Too with a grant. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me a little bit about how that funding has impacted the program? We received a really great grant from ECF, uh, from the Edmonton Community Foundation, that has really helped us establish ourselves um, in a more sustainable manner. I was talking a little bit about the seasonality of the work, and that kind of comes into play with the grant as well. 
We have a fleet of 170 bikes, and in the winter months, we need to inspect, maintain, and repair every single one of them before they go back out for the kids. This ensures safety. It also ensures the longevity of our fleet because bikes degrade over time. Things can break and go wrong, and so that we can provide the best care for the bikes to help make the program as sustainable as possible, the funding from ECF helped us do that. So it helped us work to establish a bike mechanic repair station or shop in our warehouse space where we are today, and it involves purchasing tools, equipment, machinery, anything in like all the plywood so that we could use the shelving that we see in this room as well, the industrial racking. It's not called a shelf, it's called a rack when you're in a warehouse. Something I've learned recently. <laughs> so the, the industrial racking that we have to store the bikes on. So it's really helped us establish that shop to ensure the sustainability of our program and also improve our volunteer services. So we used to have to ask volunteers to bring their own tools, which kind of limits what volunteers can do. They have to have those tools already, and if they don't that would often make volunteers feel like they couldn't help us as much as they wanted to. And so by having all the tools available, it makes that easier on our volunteers. And it also increases our ability to provide services back to our volunteers. So it used to be volunteers would come in, they would bring their tools. I would also borrow tools from different organizations, and I'd have to spend my time coordinating picking them up and bringing them and taking them back and all of that. And now volunteers can just arrive, and everything's ready for them to use. And if they don't know that much about the tools yet, they can also learn. So they can learn not only about maybe specialized cycling tools, adaptive cycling tools, but they can also just learn basic bike mechanics as well that can help them be either maybe a career path or just broaden their knowledge and get something in return for their service to us. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you seen this program benefit individuals sort of on a first-hand basis? That's a really great question. The times that that comes up are on the, what we call our fitting days, and that's when the kids pick up their bikes. And we call them fitting days because they get fit specifically for that bike. We have volunteer therapists and volunteer mechanics who work one-on-one. Sometimes we team student therapists or student mechanics with them, and so they come. But they have a mechanic and a therapist, at the very least, to make sure that bike fits them perfectly. And so when we see a kid ride around on that bike for the first time, the smile on their face, the joy that they experience, and also just that almost rite of passage that a lot of youth experience in North America when it comes to cycling, that door is open to them now. And so you see that individual impact in each child's face whenever they are riding their bike for the first time and they are like, I can really take it home? It's I can take it home? Like, yeah, you can take it home. <laughs> and we also hear a lot of really great reports from parents and guardians that children are more included in their neighborhood so their neighborhood friends, they can go and do an activity with them. Maybe for the first time that they actually get to play with the kids in their neighborhood is riding their bikes around a cul-de-sac together or something like that. And so that inclusion and those social barriers are also really important to the service that we provide. And that's a big individual impact we see in kids' lives, like social impact as well. That actually dives nicely into my next question. How do you see You Can Ride to fit in with the overall cycling community in Edmonton? Absolutely. It's my personal opinion, and I think the opinion of a lot of the people that work with this program, is that having more inclusion in everybody's lives is good for everybody. Seeing somebody on one of our bikes in an Edmonton park riding around in the summertime can really open the eyes for maybe another family and be like, oh, I didn't even know something like that existed. Where did you get it? And they talk and they learn about our program, and that helps make cycling across the city more inclusive. And so that's something that can really help reduce some of that social isolation that a lot of people with disabilities experience. And cycling is a great pathway between that isolation and becoming part of the larger community. And what do we think the next step is for You Can Ride To? Or where do you see it going or where do you hope to see it going? The funding that we received from ECF for the tools and equipment and the mechanic workshop actually plays a big role in some of the next steps that we want to do with our program. 
our partnership with Goodwill is really important to us because it offered this space. Before then, we were operating in a sea can in St. Albert or a bus painting bay in downtown Edmonton in somebody's garage in Sherwood Park, all sorts of different places all over the Edmonton region. And so being able to have everything in one space is huge and that our partnership with Goodwill is for that space. It's a space partnership. But something we else we want to do as part of that partnership is really work towards developing a program where adults with disabilities can learn about adaptive cycling and gain mechanic skills as either employment or volunteer opportunities for them, depending on what they want or need. So being able to develop an opportunity for adults with disabilities to maintain their own bikes, to work on other people's bikes, or maybe just to support this program through volunteerism is something that we want to accomplish and want to do with Goodwill. And so having these tools on hand and the equipment is a huge step towards that ultimate goal. So I understand there is a cost to participate. Could you maybe break that down a little bit for me as to what that entails? Yeah, so for our Borrow a Bike program, there are some costs involved to participate, but it can be a little bit complex because part of the costs that we build into it are meant to help drive volunteerism. So the cost to borrow the bike for the summer is $400, and that includes a $100 refundable deposit if the bike is returned in good condition. There is a $25 administrative fee, which is the only non-refundable fee. So if you participate fully in the program, it would only cost you $25 to participate. There's a $75 volunteer deposit if you volunteer for the program for four hours, so basically one shift at one of our events, or you can help in other ways too behind the scenes if events aren't really the thing that works for you. You can have someone volunteer on your behalf. We're super open to the different ways for that to work out. And then there's a new fee that we've added this year in 2019. We were at risk of not being able to continue operating past 2019. So we had to add a new deposit to the program that is our fundraising deposit. And that is also refundable if you participate in one of our fundraisers. So if a family or a participant, someone volunteers or um, fundraises on their behalf, that $200 is also waived. So the minimum cost to participate is $25. And if you've do fundraisers and you volunteer, that's all it'll cost for you to participate. It's really important to note that the cost to maintain each one of these bikes each year is around $500 in terms of time, equipment, and everything that goes into it. We try to keep the cost down as low as we can because we understand that that's a barrier for many participants, and that's why I'm always willing to work with individuals who participate in our program to keep the cost down as low as possible for them and make it work for their schedules as parents and guardians and busy people and with lives and jobs and, you know, everything like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential there, and it could be as low as 25 or you could just pay the full 400 depending on your means. So it could be as low as $25, and you get this amazing experience for the entire summer, you said, right? Yeah, and so the $400 is for the summer costs. For a full year, it's $600, but those fees each just go up a little bit themselves, and they all are still the same. Like, the, it'd be a $50 administrative fee, and that'd be the minimum cost for you to pay as part of the year-long rental as well. I think another thing to really mention in terms of the, the bikes and the cost of this program behind the scenes is that we do our best to keep it the operating cost of the program as low as possible. I mentioned earlier that we have two part-time staff. We don't have a full-time staff person, so that's one way that the program helps keep costs lower. It's also important to note that a lot of these bikes that we have costs anywhere from $1,000 to $7,000. So buying one of these bikes is a huge barrier to so many families, and especially if a child is still growing. That's really where a lot of the benefit to this program comes in, is especially if your child is younger, they can grow through the program. They can start on a small bike, and then we have adult-sized bikes that can be borrowed by children. So they can have until the point where they're not growing anymore and then a family can make that investment into a bike so that they're not having to reinvest every year and thousands of dollars into a cycling opportunity for their kids. They can just participate in ours. 
Another really strong benefit for participating in this program for families is that they can learn what works for their kid. Because sometimes you might buy that bike, and it's not necessarily that they grew out of it, but their needs changed whether it's atrophy or it's growth in muscle, it depends. And so you might realize a year later you need a completely different style of bike. And that's one of the services that we provide is we have certified physical and occupational therapists who will consult with you at the event and find out what works best for your kid. And if it changes each year, they're going to adjust it each year. So each year you're going to get the best fit for your kid. As we are on site here in this amazing warehouse with all these fantastic bikes, why don't you take me around and show me a couple different things? I'd love to do that. We have a fleet of 170 adaptive bikes. We have everything from sort of your standard two-wheeled bike with special balance wheels and to highly modified, extremely adaptive bikes. We have hand cycles, we have recumbents, we have trikes, we have low rider bikes, the Mobo style. That's a brand, but we, it's kind of referred to as the Mobo style, really low rider ones. So this hand cycle we're looking at here is a mid-range size silvery hand cycle. Hand cycles, even though it might be sort of obvious to me is where you pedal the bike with your hands. So you have a rotation or like basically the gears come up the front of the bike. Instead of pedals, you have handles, but you still have that same kind of gear hub as you do on the side of your bike. It's just right up there kind of chest level and you cycle around using your hands. You can either go one hand at a time or you can use both hands at the same time. And then also there's a foot rest so that you can just have your feet be in a stationary position. This is really great for people who are amputees or maybe spina bifida or cerebral palsy if it's affecting mostly the legs and your arms are still good to go. It's also really good actually for older adults. Sometimes we find that hand cycles are really quite good for seniors because the legs or the hips or knees aren't working so great anymore, but arms and shoulders still are, then a hand cycle is good for you. And there's brakes and bells and everything. We have all of our bikes come with a bell. <laughs> this is a little bit more of a standard bell. Some of the ones for younger kids get funnier, sillier bells, like big penguins or like <laughs> air horns or like huh, clown horns, if you will. Sometimes I hear from parents that the bell was the favorite part of the bike, which I always love to hear. <laughs> I think that's really fun. One of the things we helped create with the funding from ECF are these mobile workstations so that when we have the wintertime in this space we're in right now, we can walk around it nicely. But in the wintertime, it is full of bikes, like literally. You can't really get through. It's a bit like a Tetris game when moving them in and out. And so these mobile workstations can roll out into the outer areas and they can fit anywhere. It's a wooden cabinet with a shelf just above waist height so you can stand and work. The doors open out to create what was called like a shadow display of tools. So they have little lines drawn around them so you know exactly where each tool goes on the pegboard with little hooks. That helps us with tool retention because sometimes, even by accident, some of our tools are quite small and a volunteer will be working on it. It might go in the pocket and go home with the volunteer. And then there's a bottom area too below the table that opens up where we keep additional tools. It helps keep our space tidy. It helps us use our space really effectively and efficiently. It makes for a really nice workstation. We're going to have three of these, so then we'll have a station for six volunteers to work simultaneously anywhere in this space that can make it work. A lot of people use bike stands when they're working on bikes in your standard bike shops. If you go to Mech or Revolution Cycle and you see them, they've got bike stands. A lot of our bikes won't go on a bike stand. A hand cycle, you can't really put a hand cycle on a bike stand. 
So Dirk developed these platforms that have two holes in the front for a wheel to balance. So depending on the size of the bike, it would go in the front or the back hole. But that will help hold the bike in place with the wheel in this little hole here. And then it's wider in the back, so kind of shaped like a funnel. So the holes are in the narrow part of the front, and it's wider in the back so that bikes can fit there. So if they have like a trike style or balance wheels on them, it will all fit onto this. And then you can sit on either a small stool or you can stand and you can work on a bike here without putting yourself into an uncomfortable position. It's got ergonomic benefits and also is just a safer place for our mechanics to work than a bike stand. And what are some of the ways that other people can get involved with You Can Ride Too? Oh, that's a re- I love it when people ask me that question because we're always looking for volunteers. We need volunteers. We need skilled volunteers who are mechanics and therapists as well. But when we also need just your general event volunteers, someone who can sit at the greeter station, as we call it. We also have a, our Learn to Ride course, which is going on right now, but we need volunteers for that. We have a lot of students from kinesiology and physiotherapy and, that, and education and physical education coming to volunteer for those so in the spring each may and june we always need volunteers for that so if that's something for you think about that for next year the best way to find out about volunteer opportunities is through our facebook and through emailing me my email address is info at you can ride ca so i-n-f-o at y-o-u-c-a-n-r-i-d-e the number two, not T-W-O, two, the number, dot C-A. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me a little bit today. It's really my pleasure. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? We're participating in a fundraising event called the Ride for Refuge, where you register and you ask for donations. There's a nice little website. And so we're, also, we're always looking for people who might be interested in helping us participate in that and maybe join our team and cycle and help us raise funds or maybe become a team captain and have their friends create a team and ride for us and help raise funds for You Can Ride Too so that we can keep cycling into the future. Thanks to Marion Roberts for introducing us to Meredith Mantooth and the You Can Ride 2 program. Be sure to check the show notes for links for more information about how you can get involved. Hey, Andrew, should we tell the listeners a little bit about Marianne? That sounds like a great idea. Marianne is currently studying journalism at McEwen University, and she's with our team for a few weeks while she's completing her internship. So we'll be hearing more of her work over the summer here on the podcast, and you'll be able to read some of her stories in our Legacy in Action magazine in our June and September issues. Awesome. Before we close the show, we want to do a podcast shout out. You might remember Nick Diaz, who was a guest host a couple of episodes ago, and he's been listening to some cool stuff. Thanks, Elizabeth. I've been listening to a couple of podcasts that I want to tell you about. Uh, The first one is from the Alberta Podcast Network. It's called Pop Cycle with Christian Zip and Eric Newby as uh, they dissect pop culture's connective tissues. So I listened to their January episode called Milkshakes. Now, they take you with that theme through a journey of pop culture references and historical references, all ending up back at the theme, and it was a lot of fun. They are wonderful to listen to. And the other one I want to tell you about is Pause by Absy Connect with the host, Naomi Mahaffey. Now, the guests for the, their pilot episode are uh, Jody Kalahu stonehouse Ben Weinlick, and Ashley Dryberg of the Edmonton Shift Lab. And in this pilot episode, they're talking about how to bring Indigenous perspectives and practice into their social innovation work. So for the first one, Pop Cycle, you can find that on the Alberta Podcast Network, on their website, or on your favorite podcast app. And for the other one, you can find it on absiconnect.ca. That's A-B-S-I connect.ca. Thanks, Nick. 
Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you have time, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews are a big help. And be sure to follow us on Facebook. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonkink. Until, Until next time. time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.